It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. On this episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity, we're going to be focusing on one of the most wonderful names given to the people of God. We are referred to as Vessels of Mercy. Let's go to the foundation scripture. In Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, Paul asked, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Now, the first thing that strikes me about these two verses is that there are only two groups of people in this world. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. We are either among the vessels of wrath or we are among the vessels of mercy. Now, we who have chosen to repent of our sins have moved out of one category into the other. The scripture says plainly that at one time we were by nature children of wrath. We were worthy recipients of the wrath of God, having indulged in sin and rebellion against him. But having repented and given our hearts to him, a fountain of mercy is opened over our lives. Now, what is mercy? If I were to define it, I would choose to do so two ways. Number one, mercy is kindness expressed toward those who are hurting, damaged, or deprived. And number two, mercy is compassion shown to the guilty, usually when judgment is deserved. Now, I probably need to repeat those two definitions. Number one, mercy is kindness expressed toward those who are hurting, damaged, or deprived. And number two, mercy is compassion shown to the guilty, usually when judgment is deserved. Now, I want you to notice right here at the beginning that all human beings are referred to as vessels, vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy. And a vessel is an object purposefully designed to contain or to be filled with some kind of substance. And your life will either be filled with terrible, dark, evil things or wonderful, beautiful things from God that fill your life with light. And you walk through this world victoriously as a result. I choose to be filled with the mercy of God. I choose to be a container of the mercy of God. We need to see that mercy is a divine attribute, a characteristic of the personality of God. In Exodus chapter 34, we find Moses going back up into Mount Sinai after he had broken the Ten Commandments at the base of the mountain when he saw the idolatry and the rebellion of the children of Israel. And God descended in a cloud and proclaim the name of the Lord before him. And listen to what God said. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, 
the Lord, the Lord God. And of course, in Hebrew, it would have been Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. I believe God was teaching Moses that even though the people of Israel had transgressed terribly and they had fallen back into idolatry fresh out of Egypt, still God was going to mercifully deal with them. Later on, when he gave Moses the design for the tabernacle, the innermost sanctuary was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that Ark contained the law, the tablets of stone that Moses received from God. But the lid of the Ark was called the mercy seat. It was God's representative throne on earth. And on the mercy seat, the glory of God rested. And when Moses would go into the Holy of Holies, God would commune with him from the mercy seat. And see, God communes with human beings who come to him in repentance, claiming the blood of Jesus as our redemption. He communes with us from his mercy seat. He's ready to have mercy on us because that seat was actually the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The lid was the top of the Ark in which the commandments on tablets of stone and the book of the law were placed. And so there was something higher than the law. There was something higher than the rigidity of just commandments and judgments on those who transgressed. There's something called mercy that makes God bend toward the hurting and the erring. The Bible said, because of his compassions not failing, his mercy is new every morning. Thank God for that. God is so committed to revealing this aspect of his nature that he has named himself in the word of God with the word mercy. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it refers to him as the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation because he's the father of mercies, because he compassionately comes down to the level of fallen human beings to loose us away from the bondage that oftentimes we create for ourselves. He can comfort us in temptations and trials and hurts and pains, in emotional distress. He understands in fact, when he came to earth in the form of his son, he was referred to as the merciful high priest in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, who took upon himself the form of human flesh and was tempted in all points like as we are. And because of that, he can relate to us. And because of that, he can mercifully uphold us in times of weakness. No wonder David even referred to him as the God of my mercy in Psalm 59 verse 10. In other words, David was saying God's mercy has perfectly matched the needs of my life, the failures of my past, the pain of my present, the curse that was over me when I was conceived in iniquity and born in sin. He is the God of my mercy. And I think just as David said that, we can all say that. 
Again, let me reemphasize, Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, what does the word propitiation mean? It means satisfaction for the demands of justice. See, God is a just God, and in him there is no injustice. He is devoid of injustice. And when he makes laws, his just nature demands retribution for transgression. And he warned Adam and Eve in the beginning, in the day you partake of this, you will surely die. His law was set in stone, and retribution came when transgression happened. However, when Jesus came into the world, he made propitiation. He satisfied the demands of justice because the soul that sins, it shall die. That means mental death, emotional death. That means spiritual death and physical death. Ultimately, that means the second death, which is both soul and body perishing forever. But the scripture also says that Jesus tasted death for every man by the grace of God, by the unmerited love of God. He came and assumed that position of judgment for us. And the death that should have consumed us, enveloped us, devoured us, destroyed us, that death fell on him. He was devoured by it on the cross but thank God, three days later, he shook off the chains of death, having paid the price that we should have been compelled to pay. But now we can look on the cross, we can be free from the judgment that should have been our lot. Thank God, because of mercy, all because of mercy. I believe one of my favorite passages of Scripture dealing with mercy is Psalm 103, verses 11 through 17. I'm only going to mention the first and the last verse of that passage. Again, that's Psalm 103, verses 11 and 17. Listen to it closely. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. So here we have the condition for the promise to be fulfilled, and that is fearing God. And you need to understand that the word fear has two different meanings. It can mean to be terrified, or it can mean to hallow God with the highest respect and reverence and to submit to him, to melt before him in utter resignation to his will, in love and in devotion, not in a terrified state of mind. Just like the word faith can mean two things. The word faith can mean to trust God or rely upon him, or the word faith can mean the sum of doctrinal beliefs that we base our life on. It has two meanings, the same word. So the word fear has two primary meanings. And here it means to be awestruck with reverence toward the creator of the universe and to melt in loving submission before him. And if God finds that attitude residing in your heart, as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward you. My question would be, how high are the heavens above the earth? 
Well, in order to answer that, we need to find out how many heavens there are. The Bible only identifies three heavens. I believe the first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth and the starry heavens, the physical universe beyond. Now, the third heaven Paul identified as being paradise, which is evidently the manifest presence of God. And there's a second heaven that we're not told much about, but it must be a spiritual realm beyond our perception, beyond our ability to see, that contains angelic and demonic activity, and it's the realm in which the kingdoms of light and darkness clash. We know that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, but you don't look up into the atmosphere and see him seated on a cloud. So it must be a concentric realm, a realm that occupies somewhat the same space, but it's higher dimensionally, if you will. The second heaven, where there's again a clashing of the two kingdoms. Well, how high is the first heaven? As big as the natural universe. And we don't know if that's infinite in scope or if there is a limit to the natural cosmos. How high is the second heaven? We have no idea. How high is the third heaven? Certainly, if the third heaven contains the manifest presence of God, it must be immense. It must be close to an infinite expanse. (laughs) One writer in the Bible said, the heaven of heavens cannot even contain God, so he does go beyond it. But I would like to believe that it's amazingly vast. And if the mercy of God is above your life as high as the heavens, to me, that would mean as long as you are found in an awestruck and surrendered and loving state in your heart toward God, that there is an infinitely inexhaustible amount of mercy pouring out on you. Wonderful words. Then in verse 17 of the same passage, Psalm 103, it adds to this powerfully. That verse says, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Once again, the prerequisite is fearing God being awestruck with wonder over his glory, his power, his infinitude, his omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. You just want to melt under his greatness because of the fear of the Lord. And if you do so, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting in your life. That means it proceeds infinitely into the past. It weaves its way through every mistake you've ever made in your life, all the way back to the moment that you were conceived in iniquity and sin and came under the curse that hovers over all humanity. It passes through that into the eternal past where you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. So it weaves its way into your future through every failing or faltering that you may go through in your days to come. It passes right down into the grave with your physical body and will gloriously and triumphantly bring you out of the grave at the coming of the Lord and then and then pierces the eternal future with its constancy and power. Praise God. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear him. What a tremendous promise. Now, I want to reemphasize 
that mercy and glory are found together. Just like the mercy seat in the tabernacle of Moses was the place where the glory of God resided, just like our original foundational verse says that God pours out the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy so we can find this central truth that where you discover the glory of God, you discover the mercy of God. The very fact that God's glory is poured into your life is an indication to me that his mercy has prevailed in your life. That's wonderful news. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, it was an awesome day. The Bible declares that fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrificial offerings that were being offered up to consecrate this new edifice to God. And there were 120 priests blowing trumpets and a choir that was singing, praise the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. And that was so attractive to heaven that the glory of God swept into that sanctuary and the priests fell under the power of God's presence. They could not stand up to minister because the choir celebrated the fact that God's mercy endures forever. I believe when you and I celebrate that fact, the glory of God will rush into our lives. Jehoshaphat's army that was facing five opposing armies, sang that song on the battlefield. Praise the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And God sent ambushments against the enemy. I believe it was bands of angels that confused the enemy armies and made them fight each other. I pray that God will send ambushments against the evil things that would like to take over our society, our culture, and our world those groups that are motivated by evil desires and evil motives and evil agendas, and may it create chaos in that camp, and may a great awakening result worldwide. That's the biggest threat to the diabolical things that are happening in our world right now. Oh, God's mercy endures. How long? It endures forever. If God's mercy could endure the fall of Adam and Eve, if God's mercy could endure the rebellion of the children of Israel in the wilderness, if God's mercy could endure the very crucifixion of the Son of God, then God's mercy can endure the failings and the falterings that have been in your life and still be there for you when you believe, when you trust, and when you surrender. Yes, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. Now that you've received his mercy, it's time for you to give it away. For judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. And James 2.13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. It triumphs over judgment from God to you, and it triumphs over judgment from you toward others. So let's receive the mercy of God as vessels of mercy and let's extend the mercy of God to others as vessels of mercy. Remember, a vessel is an object that is intentionally created to be filled. You have them in your kitchens, pots, pans, bowls, glasses, dishes. All these vessels have been created to be filled with some kind of substance, 
and you, child of God, have been created to be filled, not just a little bit, but overflowing with the love of God, the peace of God, the joy of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God. And may you as a vessel of mercy be filled to the brim with the character of God and extend it to a hurting world around you. Because remember, mercy is kindness poured out on those who are hurting, those who are damaged, and those who are deprived. Let's be the examples of mercy in this world in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given His people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.